0: What if an American president, during a time of economic crisis, had a secret cancer surgery on a boat at sea, and that led to a cover up of this episode? Welcome to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. This is the Reach MD Book Club, and I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. With me today is Matthew Algio, author of the book The President is a Sick Man, which is our discussion focus today. Mr. Algio is also a journalist and has reported from several distant countries, and he joins us today from the other side of the world in Mongolia. Matthew, welcome. Thank you so much. When I ask around at work this week and ask people what they knew about Grover Cleveland, people didn't know much. I think the best someone could do was say he was our only president to serve non-consecutive terms. Can you tell us a little bit about Grover Cleveland?
1: Yeah, uh, Grover is the president that screwed up the numbering for presidents. Uh, Barack Obama is president number 44, but only 43 people have been president because Grover was uh, president number 22 and 24 and Benjamin Harrison was the president in between there. And it's a shame that that's the only thing that people really remember Grover for, because he was really a fascinating guy. He was the only Democrat elected president between the Civil War and the First World War, really. And uh, he, he, he served at a time of great ec- economic turmoil in America. And he had to make some very momentous decisions. Uh, but really, he does tend to get lost in that, in that array of presidents, you know, that uh, we really don't remember much about. You've got your Chester Arthurs and Benjamin Harrison. And, and, and it's a shame because uh, Grover really was a fascinating guy who served at a very interesting time in American history.
0: So what was going on economically in the United States in the years of his presidency?
1: Well, it was really interesting researching the book to find out how much uh, was going on that is similar to what the situation has been in America in recent years. For one, uh, there was a bubble, an economic investment bubble, and in 1893 it was railroads. Railroads were hopelessly overbuilt in the early 1890s, and uh, you know you'd have similar lines running between, say, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, or, or Philadelphia, and New York. Every railroad would build a line, and everybody was investing in railroads. And then, finally, in the early 1890s, somebody, uh, people realized that too much money had been put into railroads, and there wasn't enough to sustain all this. And so, in 1893, actually shortly before Grover took office, uh, the Reading Railroad, which was a big railroad based in Philadelphia, went bankrupt, and this was sort of burst the bubble and sent into sent into a motion a chain of events, and, and, and dozens of railroads went bankrupt. And all the companies that depended on the railroads went bankrupt. And then there was another issue at the time, too, which was money. Should our money be based on gold or silver? And, of course, today uh, our money is not really based on anything. But back then, the debate was whether it should be based on gold or silver. And, and these are really kind of arcane things to us today. But, but back in, in 1893, these were, these were huge issues. And the, the decisions people made really have a lot of effect on us uh, even today.
0: So medically, what was wrong with Grover Cleveland? Well, Grover, shortly
1: after he took office in, uh, in 1893, noticed a little bump on the roof of his mouth. And uh, he wasn't the healthiest guy. Anybody who's seen a picture of Grover knows he was a pretty big guy. He had uh, big appetites. He liked to eat a lot. He liked to drink a lot. And uh, the bump on the roof of his mouth, he, he really didn't pay much attention to it because of all the things that were going on in the country at the time. Like we talked about, the the economy was imploding. Uh, so so he, he ignored it. And it wasn't really until a couple of months later that finally one of the doctors at the White House took a look at this bump and decided that it was, in fact, a cancerous tumor. Uh, a small tumor on the roof of his mouth. It was on the upper left-hand side of his upper palate, and really the only treatment for the tumor at that time uh, was to cut it out. And so it was decided that they would have to have an operation to uh, remove this uh,
0: tumor. So how did General Grant's illness, I know you, Ulysses S. Grant had been sick around that time, how did that impact Cleveland's decision to not share this with the populace?
1: Yeah, uh, General Grant had died a few years before, and uh, he had also had a cancerous tumor in his mouth, and Grant's death was a a, a real public spectacle. Newspapers printed hourly updates on, on the condition of General Grant as he, he really just sort of slowly deteriorated his condition. It was a very agonizing death. And, and Grover Cleveland was a very personal or a, a very private guy. Uh, he he did, had no desire to be... Part of any kind of spectacle like General Grant had been uh, a few years before. In fact, it was during Grover's first term that uh, uh, Grant died, and Grover was well aware of what a spectacle it had been when Grant had been diagnosed with this tumor in his mouth, and and uh, so that was one of the one of the reasons anyway that uh, Grover decided to keep everything uh, quiet, to keep everything secret. That he didn't want anybody to know he had cancer.
0: So this is not the first time that an American president had hid an illness from the populace.
1: Well, Grant actually he was an ex-president at that time. Um, so, but but you're right, this was not the first time. In fact, you can go all the way back to uh, President Washington. President Washington had a had a had a large tumor removed from his leg when he was president, and even uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln was uh, uh, quite ill when he was uh, uh, president at one point, Uh, shortly after the Gettysburg Address. He had a form of, uh, uh, I believe it was scarlet fever. And and so we've had plenty of cases of presidents that uh, hide their maladies from the public.
0: And overall, if you look back, presidents really have not gotten great care historically. Now I think they get great care, but once upon a time they did not.
1: Well, it's interesting to look back at who the presidents choose as their caregivers. And uh, you do have some instances, really, where the president's made some very poor choices in caregivers. Uh, One of them, uh, probably the best example, uh, is uh, Warren Harding. Poor old uh, uh, Warren Harding. He had a terrible heart condition. He had congestive heart failure. Uh, The doctor, though, he chose for his uh, White House physician was was an old doc from his hometown in Ohio. This is the early 1920s, and uh, the doctor liked to prescribe pills by color. So we tell Warren to take uh, two pink pills if he was feeling bad. So you you do have examples of this through history where the position of White House physician it's a it's a great political position and sometimes I think presidents have felt the need to uh, appoint people based on politics and not necessarily on the best interest of their health care.
0: My favorite story is the assassin for James Garfield who was on trial. He said, "I shot him, but his doctors killed him."
1: Yeah, poor old James Garfield. He. Uh, he got shot in the back at a train station in uh, Washington in 1881 uh, by Charles Gateau, who was the proverbial disappointed office seeker. But really, if they'd taken Garfield back to the White House and just put him on a bed and let him be for a few weeks, he, he probably would have survived. Um, Lister's theory, the germ theory, was really just starting to come into play uh, at that time in 1881 and a lot of doctors did not subscribe to it and uh they probed the wound in Garfield's back with their fingers and with unsterilized instruments and uh it was it was uh it's widely believed that it was the infection that killed Garfield now now cleveland was lucky 12 years later by 1893 lister's theories were really widely accepted and uh, the conditions under which his operation took place were very sterile, although it wasn't a great, <laughs> wasn't a great situation um, to, have, uh, to have the operation, but at least it was very sterile.
0: You are listening to Reach MD Book Club. I'm Dr. John Russell, and I'm speaking with Matthew Algio about his book, The President is a Sick Man, about Grover Cleveland's secret cancer surgery at sea. So, speaking of the secret surgery at sea, so how did that come about?
1: Well, Cleveland decided after the after he was diagnosed with this uh, cancerous tumor in the roof of his mouth, he decided he wanted to keep everything secret. Uh, as we talked about earlier, he was a very private guy, but there were also uh, political considerations. At the time, the country uh, was really descending into economic turmoil. It's a, uh, what we call the Panic of 1893 now. Uh, we talked about the railroads were going bankrupt. There was a great controversy over whether money should be based on gold or silver. All these things were going on. And, and, and that led Cleveland to decide to have this operation in secret. And he decided, in fact, to have it on a friend's boat. He had gone out on this boat. It was called the Oneida, uh, a guy named Benedict who made his fortune in natural gas, and he was a good friend of Cleveland's. Cleveland had gone fishing on this boat many, many times in the past. So the cover story was Cleveland would just be going fishing the day uh, on Long Island Sound, and, and that's when the operation would take place. And so they assembled a team of physicians. They were really some of the best physicians in America at the time. Uh, William Williams Keene uh, was the lead physician. He was a guy from uh, Philadelphia who had performed one of the first uh, brain surgeries, successful brain surgeries in American history. And so these were really the cream of the crop of American surgery. And they assembled on the boat, and they uh, they sailed out July 1st, 1893, and as they sailed across uh, Long Island Sound, they performed this operation to remove the tumor from Cleveland's mouth.
0: It's just hard to believe that a president then could show up who's gotten a third of his palate removed and, and someone wouldn't pick up on something being wrong.
1: Well, probably the most amazing part of, you know, medically speaking, is uh, is the recovery and the cover-up afterwards. And and first of all, he he went up to his home in uh, uh, on Cape Cod and uh, spent several weeks there recovering and this was not unusual in the middle of summer for a politician, for the president, to just disappear from Washington for a few weeks at the time. Uh, you know, pretty much Washington took the took the summer off back then, as they still do to some to some extent. But there was a, a dentist actually that fashioned a, a prosthetic device, uh, a piece of vulcanized rubber. And once the wound inside his mouth was healed well enough, this piece of vulcanized rubber could be snapped into place to to fill the cavity. And once this was in place, it restored the, the shape of his face. And more importantly, it restored his speaking voice. Without this prosthesis, uh, Cleveland had, spoke with a, had a terrible uh, speech impediment. But once this was in place, it, it restored his voice. And, and also the surgery itself had taken place entirely inside the mouth. Uh, they were very fortunate that way that it didn't didn't result in any external scars, so there were no external scars uh, after After several weeks. he was fitted with this prosthesis and he could speak normally and the cover story was that he had had a toothache that he had had a tooth removed, which which he had they also you know he had a large part of his palate removed in addition to the tooth um, but but once the, once everything was in place after a few weeks, the rumors subsided, and it became uh, apparent to people that not that much had
0: happened to him. But there was one reporter, I guess the Woodward and Bernstein of the time, an E.J. Edwards, who exposed this operation.
1: Yeah, he was a reporter for a Philadelphia newspaper, the press, and he had heard rumors uh, that something was wrong with Cleveland and and was able to track down one of the doctors and confirm the story, uh, and he published it. And it was in late August, August 31st, 1893, he published this story in the Philadelphia press that really detailed the operation uh, in pretty remarkable detail and Cleveland denied it the Cleveland administration completely uh denied that such an operation had taken place they stuck to their story that it was a toothache that it had a tooth removed and uh, really they they kind of uh, uh they killed the messenger so to speak they they really trashed uh, uh, Edwards competing papers called him a, a liar, a cancer faker, a disgrace to journalism, this sort of thing. And so, Edwards had come up with the scoop of the century, but really, uh, in the end, it it ended up hurting his career, not helping
0: it. So ultimately, what happened to Grover Cleveland?
1: Uh, Grover went out. He served his second term. He left office in 1897. Uh, he retired to Princeton. He died in 1907. And the cause of his death was always sort of a mystery, because uh, there was no autopsy performed. It was believed he had some sort. He was about seventy. he had some sort of uh, a problem with his uh, intestines. There was a theory that he had had cancer that he died of cancer, and that maybe that the the tumor that had been removed from his mouth had uh, metastasized and, and ultimately you know killed him that the, that the two were somehow connected and but it wasn't until the 1980s uh, that the tumor that had been removed from his mouth, which had been preserved by one of the doctors and donated to a museum in Philadelphia. In 1980, that tumor was finally analyzed. Uh, and it turned out that uh, Grover had a, had a fairly rare kind of uh, cancer. It's called varicose carcinoma. Uh, it's a slow-growing uh, tumor uh, in the mouth that generally, or it does not, uh, metastasize. So it had no connection with whatever killed him. Um, but the, the, the treatment for this cancer today is, is what they did to him in, in 1893, and that is to just cut out the tumor. That's really all you can do. And so Grover actually received uh, the, the same treatment he would have uh, received today, although, <laughs> albeit in a very uh, uh, more favorable uh, setting.
0: And you can see his tumor in the at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. You can see it on display.
1: Yeah, the tumor is still preserved. It's in a jar. Uh, you you can go look at it. There's a couple of teeth in there. It's, it's not much to look at, but uh, it's a fascinating specimen of uh, American uh, presidential and medical history.
0: And what happened to the poor reporter who was who was really blasphemed, I guess?
1: Yeah, that that's the great uh, coda to the story. In 1917, about 10 years after uh, Cleveland died, most of the principals who had taken part in the uh, surgery were dead. Uh, but uh, one of the doctors, uh, William Keene, was still alive, and, and he decided he'd always felt badly about the way Edwards, the reporter, had been treated. And so he decided uh, to uh, vindicate him and published a, a full account, a true account, of the operation in the Saturday Evening Post, of all places. But uh, this, uh, this account, the publication of this account, vindicated Edwards, finally, both were old men at the time in their 70s, I mean, old for that time. And, uh, and Edwards was much gratified that uh, Keene finally vindicated him all those years later.
0: Well, I'd really like to recommend to my listeners to really check out your book. I think it's a wonderful tale, an almost unbelievable tale. Are you working on any new books right now?
1: Uh, I am working on a book. I'm just finishing a book right now. It might be of some some interest to your listeners. Um, It's a book about a very popular 19th century sport, uh, competitive walking. Uh, In the 1880s, walking matches were the most popular spectator sport in the United States and uh, thousands of people would come to see people walk, and generally the matches took six days uh, because you couldn't, you know, have public amusements on Sundays at the time, so you start walking uh, uh, just after midnight, uh, Sunday night, Monday morning, right up until midnight Saturday night, and uh, for instance, at uh, Madison Square Garden, they just mark out an eighth-mile oval on the floor, and these guys would just walk and walk and walk for six days. Whoever walked the most miles in six days was the winner, and thousands of people would come out to watch this. And, of course, by the, by the end, these guys would be delirious from sleep deprivation and, uh, and, and malnourishment. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that and uh, kind of the history of sports.
0: What will that book be called?
1: Pedestrianism.
0: So we'll look out for that. And and Matthew, once again, I want to thank you for joining us here on ReachMD's Book Club. This is Dr. John Russell. If you missed any or part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download the podcast and learn more about this series. Thank you for listening.